If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Uh, uh, Jesus. Welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Podcast for Wednesday, February 1st, 2017. I was Pat Contry at one point in time. What do we got going on in the show today? Oh, we'll be talking about uh, the GameStop program where they officially lie to customers about what games they have in stock. The passing of the founder of Namco. We'll also be discussing... Uh, Neo Geo counterfeits in an article from the New Yorker. Uh, the Switch, Nintendo Switch having a Super Bowl commercial? Yay, marketing! And other topics that are going on uh, in the world of retro modern games and me barely being here. No, I'm alright. Just real busy. But, uh, real quick though, an update on uh, Ian. Uh, his health is still uh, not the best. Uh, in terms of updates, you can follow him on Twitter at PixelSickle, but, uh, you know, I can say that there has not been much sort of change in the status. He's still doing tests, has have to get those tests looked at by the specialist. Uh, there's incompetent people, don't know, how to, don't know how to fucking fax stuff back and forth between offices in a timely manner. That's basically the, the short and the, and the pretty much, the, well, the short and the long of it, actually. So, if you want to help him out, uh, and also to stay up to date on uh, what's going on, go to, to thepunkeffect.com slash Ian, and that will redirect to his GoFundMe, and you can keep track of what's going on uh, there. So what's been going on in Pat's world? Well, I've been helping prep for this event. I'm helping put on the SoCal Retro Gaming Expo. That's February 4th and 5th in Ontario, California. Lots of cool YouTubers are going to be there. It's, it's interesting going to conventions for years and years and years, I mean, my first convention that I was a guest at was, Jesus Christ, uh, Screw Attack Gaming Convention. That was 2010, so it's been almost seven years. Uh, I've been here seven years. Um, interesting to be a guest at so many on that side and then actually try to put them on. And uh, it's about what you expect. There's a lot of, not drama, but a lot of ins and outs. A lot of uh, stuff you got to plan for, look out for, little hiccups. But uh, it's going to be a fun time. Frank's going to be there. You're going to have guys like uh, Andre Meadows of Black Nerd Comedy uh, there. You're going to have Billy and Jay Game Chasers, uh, Pro Jared, Gerard the Completionist, my pal Gerard, who helped out with the NES Marathon. Uh, you're also going to have Phil Moore from Nick Arcade. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, dozens of arcade games and tournaments and consoles, and I'll be there hawking my wares. So go to SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com for more information and tickets. If you want to uh, you want to save before they get to the door, you want to rush on in to buy those games, you don't want to wait with the other humanoids, uh, you buy the tickets early and use promo code NESPUNK to save uh, on your tickets there. Other than that, the uh, Ultimate NES Game Guide app is out for both iOS and Android. And Android. And Android. 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 Can I just say Android? But it's really Android, not Droid. What? Anyway, so, and version 1.1 is out. 
1.2 is on the way. We have this. We have the sucker specced out to like 1.5 because you know what? We're not gonna be like those other apps out there that you know never update. No, there's a lot of stuff planned for next few months for the app, but 1.1 is a pretty good spot. 1.2 is gonna be like the really holding it down. But 1.1 is pretty, pretty, pretty much where I wanted it to be when it first launched. But a little behind, we're catching up with me and Embrace. We're working together. So go to ios.ultimatenes.com. And if you're on your iPhone, that'll pop up to the store. You can purchase it there for the nominal fee of four ninety nine. But yeah, there's no there's no uh there's no DLC, there's no uh microtransactions, there's nothing like well, you only can look at fourteen games a day before you gotta buy buy more uh, game views for a dollar. No, we don't have that in the in the app here, you know. We don't have that stuff going on. And then the Android one is at droid.ultimatenes.com. And if you're on a computer or your app your app, you're on your phone, not your app, you're on your Google phone. Google, well, not Google phone, your Android device. Is there Google phones anymore and Windows phones? Anyway, well, there's Google phones, I guess, but it's Google Play Store. Anyway, so that address will bring up the, the app for you to buy, is what I'm trying to say, because I'm starting off on an awful foot of this podcast. My head's already sw- swirling with things I have to still do. Uh, so speaking of cool stuff, though, by the time you listen to this, an NES Punk episode will be out. The NES Punk, and it's a look at the NES Classic Edition in all its games. And uh, it's 28 minutes long. Holy God. So check out that video. Please retweet and share my NES Punk videos since they don't really they don't really uh, support themselves in terms of uh, finances, in terms of the time put into them versus how many people see them. It just, it's, it's sort of that age-old dilemma. You like doing them, but you know when something takes you 60 hours to do and you really don't get paid for those hours, it's kind of hard to constantly be putting time towards it, which is, again, why... People say, "Why can't you do one, of, do one of these every month?" Well, that means I can't work on stuff that actually would get me money to live and survive and to, you know, make myself happy in life. So that's that's the thing. Yeah, I can do a Pat Dennis Punk video every week if I wanted to, but I'd be miserable, and you know, I'd have to go back to work. Uh, you know, what I used to do? I used to uh, I used to be a be a hangman's gallows man. Yeah, that's what I used to be back in back in the old west. <laughs> what am I talking about? I'm not starting off well. I have a have a very uh, you know, very dark, humorous little anecdote about a, a job that... That's the only job I could think of! Was that Hangman's Gallows guy? Is that even the proper... The executioner? Is that a more proper term there? Is that really the only job I can come up with? There's probably uh, literally hundreds of thousands of jobs that I could have probably thought of. School teacher, uh, doctor, lawyer, and any one of those sitcom jobs you see out there. Usually half of them are lawyers, the other half are doctors. But I, I picked... A fucking executioner. Someone that puts a noose around someone's neck in the Old West. That's just... I, that, that. Wow, that's... that's uh, is that Freudian or uh, Jungian? Or, where did I just go there? I'm out of my goddamn mind. I, this is before the podcast even starts. Oh, uh, jeez. So anyway, and speaking of uh, ramblings of a madman, uh, I will have plans to start up the uh, the Patcast. I'm not sure that's going to be the final name. That's the working title, which will be my non-gaming podcast. And that's going to probably happen. I don't know. But look out for it by March. Maybe before. I got to take a freaking break. That's all I know. Uh, I got to take a break after the SoCal Retro Gaming Expo February 4th and 5th in Ontario, California. So GameStop. Dirty, dirty GameStop and their lies. And their lies. It, it's always funny to me whenever there's a GameStop article about... Uh, any topic at all, whether it's the Retro Game Initiative, 
new stuff, pre-orders, there's always at least two or three people in the comments that say either, I used to work at GameStop, and it's shit. I still worked at GameStop, and it's shit. I was a manager who worked at GameStop, or I'm currently a manager who works at GameStop, and they're shit. And of course, they... I mean, all these people say on the boards, and no one's disputing it, that employees aren't treated properly, their hours get cut, they're, they're, they're forced to push the, you know, the GameStop award programs in the magazine. You know, and that goes back to, that's not even a recent thing. That's 15 years pushing their magazine and subscri- you know, subscribing to the award program and stuff like that. And, and they're not even called managers anymore at GameStop. They're leaders and customers. Are, what, are they, what are customers called? Are they called players or... Uh, walking, uh, walking piles of cash. What are they, what is the official name? They're not allowed to call customers customers. Anyway, since it's been a while since we spoke about anything GameStop related on the podcast, uh, there's a great new topic that it's not shocking to hear this. That according to this is a Kotaku article by Jason Schreier, who's one of the more respectable guys on Kotaku, if there are any. Uh, he's, I guess, one of them. Um, New GameStop program leads employees to lie to customers. And they called this program the Circle of Life. It's the circle of life and lying to your customers that we're not calling customers. So there's quotas at GameStop, uh, individual stores for pre-orders, reward card subscriptions, which we knew that. Uh, use game sales and game trade-ins. There's a certain mark you're required to hit or else you're going to get a brow-beating and or eventual firing. And I'm guessing the individual employees, besides the not manager leader, also have these same goals they have to hit while they're working there. All right, makes sense. So, pre-orders and reward card subscriptions are based on the total number of transactions, which means that you know if, if there's a thousand transactions in a month, there's a percentage of those you have to hit. So, say say the uh, the, the sell-through rate has to be at least ten percent. You got to sell at least a hundred of those bad boys out of a thousand, or else you know you're in trouble. You know. Da da da. So if a store's quota for used game sales is 30%, and the store sells 1,000 worth of merchandise, GameStop uh, expects at least 300 of that merchandise to be pre-owned. All right, so they have that too. Besides, you know, they're tracking all this shit. It's a corporation. It's it's traded. It's publicly traded. All right. So if someone, this is, I'm just plagiarizing word for word here, but whatever. So if someone walks into a GameStop and picks up, say, a brand new copy of Yakuza uh, without pre-ordering another game, subscribing for a new rewards card, buying a used game, or trading in some games to help pay for it, then the transaction will knock down all, all four percentages. And this, is a, this isn't even a, a, a secret at all. When you walk into GameStop, it's like a 10-minute process to buy a game because they've got to look up your current account. They ask if you want to pre-order anything that's on their list. Do you want the subscription? Do you have the awards ca- rewards card? I think I have the rewards card actually laying around somewhere. So there you go. So, But this is the new part of this deal that you're going to have everyone ranting and raving about. This, with Pat, at least, you get the more level-headed, not everything's the end of the world perspective. Even though stuff is still shitty, you don't have to go jump off the nearest bridge uh, when you hear the stuff from good old Pat. Because I don't have the energy. I'm getting old. <laughs> so this was a, an email from an anonymous worker to, this, to uh, Kotaku who stated this. Uh, but GameStop is... According to this, incentivizing employees to stop people from buying new games and hardware. That just goes beyond pushing used games or trade-ins. Now we're just going to stop people from buying the stuff we have in stock. GameStop staff say the company has threatened to fire people who don't hit their quotas, which leads to these sort of tactics. I mean, if if someone wants to come in and buy a game and you have a, a used one or a new one, 
and it actually hurts you. It hurts your your store's uh, quotas to sell the new one. Then you're going to send them away until you can sell that used one. It's insane to think about, but that's what's going on. In quotes from the person that emailed, we are telling people we don't have any new systems in stock, so we don't take a $300 or $400 hit on our pre-owned numbers. This is company-wide, and it is in discussion with my peers. And in discussion with my peers, it is common practice. We also tell customers that we don't have copies of new games in stock when they are for sale. For example, Watch Dogs 2 is currently $2.99 new and $54.99 pre-owned. We just tell them we don't have the new one in stock and shuffle them out the door. The Circle of Life program, which began late last year but ramped up in early 2017, according to staff, attaches a specific COL score to each employee and store. Each of the four categories represents 25% of that total COL score. Fourth categories being uh, the rewards program and pre-orders and uh, trades and blah, 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 uh, and use games. So, wow. So you're in trouble if you don't hit this goal at, at your individual store. You have to get at least a 75% uh, hit on three of the four quotas. And uh, if a store is hitting their targets but one salesperson is not, that salesperson may face punishment or even lose their job. This is fantastic. But is it a shock? I mean, the margin that GameStop makes on new games is nowhere near what they're making on, on trade-ins and in use game sales. So if, if you compare a $50 uh, new game, the, the GameStop might be making, I don't know, not even $10 on that? Is it even that? Is there someone out there with more knowledge? The margin isn't great on on this stuff for new games. It just isn't. But on used games, a $50 used game, that was traded in, and GameStop probably gave you like 15 20 bucks. That's $30 profit. So you're talking, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to them as much for these new games sales in comparison to the, to the trade-in business. It just doesn't. It's so much harder for them to make it up. That's why they want to push push, 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 like Twilight Zone, push, 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 push the trade-ins and use game sales. It just makes, it makes business sense, but it's shitty that you're going to lie to your customers. Absolutely shitty. So now to work at GameStop, to be a leader, or even a regular employee, you have to actually have no ethics anymore. You know, it's not even what the uh, the customer's always right. Now it's the customer, we can just lie to them. The customer's always getting bullshitted to. That's the new slogan that Pat comes up to in 2017. You know, that's that's what we got here. A quote from this anonymous source. The other day, working the Resident Evil 7 Kingdom Hearts launch, we were telling walk-in customers, non-reserved customers, that we didn't have the games in stock or that they were only for pre-orders in order to not sell new copies of games. It's that bad. So they'd rather they'd rather make less profit than some profit, but not a huge amount, to then hopefully have those people. Hopefully they come back or get a used copy a week later, so they can meet their goals. It's insane, but I don't doubt that this is true. And people and down in the comments that have uh, knowledge or have worked for GameStop say this type of stuff happens. A second employee found themselves in trouble after selling a bunch of new games last Tuesday during the launch of Resident Evil 7, Kingdom Hearts, and Tales of Berseria. Uh, they quoted, Now I'm fucked for the week. 
Now I have to sell way more pre-owned this week. They got to make up. It's not. Even, it's. You can't overly sell new games, and then you got to make it up with pre-sale. So you could be the best GameStop salesman in the world at selling new games and still making the company profit. But because you have this weird percentage quota system for pre-sale games and for and for used games and trade-ins, you can still be. Uh, browbeaten or punished or fired because you're not selling enough to make up for all the new games you're selling. It's that crazy. That crazy. This is crazier. It's almost as crazy as Second and Charles talk at this point. Man. Woo! I I really feel for you GameStop employees out there. You're trying to do the good thing. You want to enjoy video games, so why not work around it, right? That makes perfect sense. I Hell, I applied for Funko Land back when I was like 16, 17 years old. I know what's what's up. But then you're faced with this corporate bullshit that where you have to actually lie to customers or else you're going to be without a job within a few months probably. I mean, that terrible. Terrible. I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand why... Why you think GameStop corporate? This is a good strategy. Don't you just want to push sales overall? And how about instead of punishing, you have some sort of reward program for your for your individual stores that do well, and for the individual employees. Make that a bonus. It's always good positive reinforcement, not negative. Don't spank your kid for not uh, doing all the trade-ins that they that you wanted them to, but reward them with a the lollipop when they do. Well, how about that? Sort of a sad day when you talk about the passing of someone in the video game industry that really left their mark. But it's also a celebration of their life. Uh, when Ralph Bear passed a, a few years back, it was a celebration. It was good to see the internet and the video game fans in general come out and you know uh, really honor the legacy of someone. So the passing of Masaya Nakamura, who founded Namco, Ian's favorite video game company, and one of the most important video game companies uh, ever. I tweet out, you, you could not imagine the landscape of video games now without Namco because they were so influential. A little bit about the man himself. So, Masaya Nakamura looks like he got involved with some sort of uh, shipbuilding he studied after World War II. And then started Namco. I did not know this. Uh, you know, like you like, like mechanical horses, you put like a quarter in and you ride on them. That's how Namco started. That's what they originally did. And they developed those little, you know, I guess, coin, coin-operated mechanical devices and little rides. And then when the video game uh, fad it was in the late 70s came about, you know, hey, let's, let's start doing that. Let's have an arcade division. Why the hell not? You know, Space Invaders blew it up. In Japan, you know, you had these arcades popping up. And so, good old Messiah said, I want to do that. I want to start an arcade division, and I want to develop things internally. And that's what they did. And thankfully so. Thankfully so. Thankfully that happened. Um, Because if you want to remember, I wasn't there, but this is what everyone says, and this is all the evidence. And uh, You weren't alive then! Prior to 1980, in particular... Arcades, and this is, we talk about this in the video game years, historians say this, and it's the truth. When you look at pictures of them, actual pictures, arcades before the 1980 and the 70s were dark, they were dingy, because they were mainly adult oriented 
focusing primarily on males. You, go ahead and take a look at arcade games, like a list of arcade games, and look at arcade games that came out in the 70s, uh, prior to 1980, and prior to one game in particular that we'll get to. They were, for the most part, very simple games. Uh, you had uh, a lot of breakout clones or pinball sort of games. You had uh, single-screen war games, uh, games that emulated life more than what they would become. Simple games like, I think that Gremlin put out a game where you were a frog going around. Well, not life for humans, but life for a frog. That's, you know, a fishing game. Um, obviously, you had a shit ton of Space Invaders clones after Space Invaders came out. Uh, so you had, like, those shoot the, shoot the aliens single-screen games. Single-screen games. Uh, you had uh, some simple sports games, like those Atari basketball game. Uh, you, you had, uh, what, Sprint. You know, you had those simple racing games. You had, uh, what, Monaco GP. These were games that were directed and marketed and created for a very specific market for each of them. And a lot of those games didn't have massive, wide appeal. The Namco games sort of changed that. And when you look at the Namco games, uh, before the big one, before the big one, they were sort of tiptoeing towards that. The biggest one being in, in 1979, Galaxian. Colorful. Uh, had a little bit of first for video games, top of my head. You had um, a little little ditty, a little song before, a uh, little song before the, the, you know, the round. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool if, that, if you didn't hear that in a game before. Like, oh, what is that? Oh, some personality, some life there. You know? It wasn't just monochrome. You had multiple colors there. Hey, this is something. This is something. I'm not saying this is everything, but it's just something to start from. And then, and then, But then once you hit 1980, you know, all bets are off. Obviously, you have the big one. You have the big one. You have Pac-Man. Comes out May 1980 revolutionizes not just arcades, revolutionizes video games in general. Because here you have a video game in Pac-Man that is colorful, it's cute, it has the first mascot in video games, the first real IP you could mass market, appeal to men, women, boys, girls, everyone. It sort of redefined what an arcade game should be. It wasn't just some, you know, some war game that some... 45-year-old guy could enjoy. Anyone can play Pac-Man. It's simple. It's easy. It also helped uh, establish the maze genre, which for the next few years, you had all... I mean, that if you had the Space Invaders clones of the nineteen late 1970s and the early 80s, you had all the maze games, which is a fine genre. It obviously, got played out within a few years, but the, the maze genre is very important for games because it took the single-screen game and made it more complex Versus just, all right, let's uh, cast our fishing rod and hope that a, a fish eats it on the screen. Now you could, you incorporate movement on a single screen at least. So you still have the, the limitations of a single screen, but you can do more with the maze game. I mean, just looking at it, just technically. Colors, the sounds. You have a, uh, really one of the first times you have a little cutscenes in a game telling a story with actual characters in a game. And again, it appeals to everyone. And it blew up. It blew up in the in the pop culture. First time you have all these toys and cartoon shows and a freaking hit hit a single uh, based on a, a video game. 
it's it's an it's insane to think about what the landscape would have looked like had Namco not sort of just punched the industry in the gut and say, "All right, get up, look at this now. This isn't just your monochrome, you know, Space Invaders Clone Number Seventy Eight. This is something called Pac Man that anyone could play, and we're gonna fucking dominate with this game. And this will be the most recognizable video game character." For a long, long, long ass time. Besides Crash Bandicoot, oh no, we got we got Pac Man. So that's important, and obviously uh, Namco after that faltered a little bit, but they they got back up there uh, in the mid '80s after 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 putting out like 47 different Pac Man games. They decided you know they branched out a little bit more. Namco purchased Atari Games in the mid '80s. That was important. Um. They, they uh, established Tengen to really go after Nintendo directly. And that was important. Whatever side you were on, the monopolistic practice of the NES should have been challenged by some third party. And I'm glad Tengen did that. And eventually that opened the door to uh, more third party development uh, and Nintendo dropping their draconian policies, or they're forced to in a lawsuit, uh, on other systems. And uh, especially when, once, once you got to the Genesis, the practice were out the window. They, they, Nintendo could no, no longer strong-arm a company to say, okay, only come out with games on our system and not the competitors. That was gone by then. But you needed a company like Tangan to, to challenge the, the, the monolithic Nintendo practices at the time. So that's important, too. And obviously, uh, in, in modern days, you, you, know, you have Namco, Bandai. They still put out games. They, I mean, they haven't fallen off completely. Obviously, they're not as big as they were in the early 80s, but they're still a very important company. You know, the biggest games that they still put out, Tekken's freaking huge, and they have a bunch of other games as well. Um, my favorite, favorite arcade game, Rolling Thunder, Namco, right there. I, I forgot about Galaga, too. Was Rally X 79 or 80? That one, I kind of always forget. Rally X was also 80. So, uh... Oh, Galaga was 81. All right, so Galaga was after Pac-Man. But Rally X, uh, at the time, some people in the industry thought that Rally X was going to be the big hit and not Pac-Man, which is just, that's just interesting to me that you could sort of, and you see that sometimes with, with other industries, they predict one big thing. Beta! Betamax was going to be better than VHS. Uh-uh. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. The Zune was going to be better than the iPod. Well, no one thought that. So look at these, the lineup, in, though, in, just in 80 and 81. Uh, in 82, th- that helped just, again, sort of b- open up video games to this mass market. Uh, Galaxian sort of paved the way a little bit. But then you have Pac-Man, Rally X, Miss Pac-Man. And I won't go into the other Pac-Mans, but they were, they were fairly popular, but Miss Pac-Man was huge. Galaga, Bosconian, is sort of, sort of a uh, underlooked uh, early arcade game. Dig Dug, Zevius, Pole Position in 82. Mappy in 83, Tower of Draga, uh, I say Dig Dug. So, you just have all these titles that you can't imagine the arcade scene or video games in general without without the influence of those 8 to 10 games. Like, if you walked into any arcade, I'd say between 80 and 83, you are guaranteed guaranteed to see at least one Pac-Man game of, of, of some sort and probably at least one or two other uh, Namco games. Probably almost gal- guaranteed to see a Galaga game, at least one Pac-Man game, and probably, you know, we'll throw in like a Dig Dug or a Pac-Man Plus or a Super Pac-Man or a Mappy, you know, one of those others. So just 
a great company. I, it, it's a shame that Ian's still not feeling well because he could have probably just, you know, he probably would have been either just gloating over the fact that, oh, I love Namco, or he'd be so sad he'd go, you know, he'd be unhealthy again from, from the pain of the founder of Namco. The father of Pac-Man, Messiah Nakamura. And I say that because there were many articles that, in the headline and in the article, uh, in quotes, the father of Pac-Man, Messiah Nakamura. Because he led the company that birthed Pac-Man, and he was the one that decided, hey, I want to have arcade games, and these are the arcade games I want to try to do. This is sort of, you know, he set up the environment. And according to reports, that name was given to him by Namco, because they recognized, hey, this is sort of the, the father of Pac-Man. He's the father, basically the father of the company. Is When you're saying the father of Pac-Man, you're also saying he's the father of Namco, which he was. Because now Namco and Pac-Man are synonymous with each other. You, you cannot think of one without the other. It's the mascot. It's one of the most popular uh, video game mascots of all time. It's the most important video game of all time, Pac-Man. So some people decided, though, they were going to get offended by this term for some strange reason. It was really strange for me. It'll be the first and last time you'll probably ever see uh, the white knighting of Toru Iwatani, the actual developer uh, um, and programmer uh, of Pac-Man. People saying, uh, tweeting and getting angry about, oh, how dare you not uh, say that Nakamura is the father of Pac-Man. It was Iwatani. Even though every fucking article I saw where he was, in quotes, the father of Pac-Man also made it note to say that Iwatani was the actual creator of Pac-Man. So it's not like Iwatana's getting cheated out of his day in the sun. Don't worry. When he passes away in 20 years, you can go honor him. But let's be honest for a second here. You are not upset about this, really. You probably didn't know, and this is a general you, how many of you out there that were pissed that some articles quoted in quotes called Nakamura, the father of Pac-Man, knew Toro Iwatani's name? Or really gave a shit about Pac-Man at all before that opportunity to do your tweets and to go after, you know, some of these websites. It was both mind-boggling and one of the dumbest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. One of the biggest wastes of time you can probably do is to, uh, instead of honoring a great man's life who started this gigantic company and one of the pioneers of the video game industry itself, to instead of honoring him, you're going to be fucking worried about uh, a nickname that was given to him, reportedly from Namco themselves. That's how you choose to use your energy when the rest of the world wants to simply honor what sounds like a really cool individual. Uh, after the Namco Bandai merger, they, he, was, he still was there at an honorary position. Lived a great life. What was it 91 years old? Father of Pac-Man? Sure, why not? Iwatani probably doesn't give a shit. That's his nickname. Why should you? That's what, that's all I'm saying. Just really, just one of the silliest things I've seen in a while. That's all. Oh, yeah. This this is one thing I didn't know. From the, I'm glad this stuff came up. Uh, so Namco is an acronym. I, I didn't know that. This is great. It's not great that he died, but it's great that I found this out after he died. Uh... 
Nakamura Amusement Machine Manufacturing Company. So N-A-M and then C-O for company. Namco. Holy shit. The guy's name. Nakamura Namco. He is the father of Pac-Man. He's got to be. <laughs> Speaking of the father of Pac-Man, we have the killer of Pac-Man. The What's Inside channel. A channel that I thought was a parody account at first. I thought I stumbled on some sort of Onion channel, but no, it's a real YouTube channel. It's real. Oh, it's real. Where this has 4 million subscribers, and it consists of a guy literally breaking and tearing apart various objects to show you what's inside them. Now, I believe I believe there is some sort of cable show where this idea was probably... Uh, aped from where they they take like huge buzz saws and like will saw a car in half and things like that uh which is entirely dumb those guys though probably have some knowledge of the inner workings at least or have experts on to really explain the intricacies from what i've gathered from watching unfortunately having to watch a few of these videos of this what's inside channel they just destroy shit for the sake of it and tell you absolutely nothing about it other than what your own eyes can see. They're not experts at all. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. He brings his kid along for the ride, probably uh, to make himself look better on screen. I'm not just some some middle-aged asshole destroying stuff for no reason. I got a kid involved, too, so it's educational. That said, they tore apart a Pac-Man cabinet, a vintage Pac-Man cabinet, that was converted uh, via the ROM board, and the marquee header to Miss Pac-Man, but it was a Pac-Man cabinet in, in decent condition for a 37-year-old cabinet in decent condition. Uh, the monitor had a, a little bit of, of screen burning, as you'd expect from a Pac-Man machine that's 37 years old, which they then promptly destroyed that perfectly working monitor. And the, But the machine worked fine, though. They actually played the machine beforehand. All right. So they destroy a Pac-Man machine with uh, this guy uses a jigsaw. Uh, I'm going to click on some of this video so I remember it off the top of my head. He uses a jigsaw. He uses, I think, a crowbar to tear it apart. Magnanimously, they say, oh, we're going to keep some parts. We're going to keep, like, the side uh, wood. and we're gonna... They're basically going to keep half of it. They're going to keep the uh, the two pieces of, of side art attached to, you know, the, the two sides. Uh, they're going to keep the the, uh, the overlay glass. They're going to keep the glass marquee. So they're basically keep, keeping, you know, a chunk of it. And the ROM board they're going to keep, you know. This is upsetting, though. Obviously, it's upsetting. Because anyone watching this would die for a vintage arcade machine like this. This is not a cheap machine. This isn't like I would be bitching about, oh, there was this beat-up old, uh, you know, I don't know, a Play Choice 10 that was absolutely decrepit and falling apart. Even that's gone up in value, so that's not even a good example. But it's not some random machine that's on its last legs. It works, and it's a machine that, even in that condition, will go for probably close to $1,000. The arcade auction, the auctions, let alone eBay, the auctions I went to, the last ones I went to were probably seven years ago, you would get beat up Miss Pac-Man machines going for $1,000 or more, or beat up Pac-Mans going for that much. Because while there's a lot of them out there, uh, still, not as many as that were out there 40 years ago, a lot were destroyed. It's not like you can walk down the street and find them, and it's the most popular game. So people want these. They want them to either own and play them or to restore them to, like, new condition. And that's why they go for a lot of money. I mean, hell, I can check on eBay right now while I, while I comment on more about the prices of, of these. So let's, let's just, you know, let's fuck it. Pac-Man Vintage Arcade. I'm just going to see what, what the going rate is for this. 
If you want to get a restored one, you're talking, you're going to look at two grand. You want to get a beat up one? Yeah, $900 for a Miss Pac-Man. Uh, a, a new commercial one will cost you two grand. These, but yeah, these these are coveted. These are definitely coveted. A multi K converted fifteen hundred. Buy it now. Obviously, your miles miles may vary on this. He could have got this locally for a lot less. But the fact of the matter is, this is a coveted machine. You're storing it for no good reason. I thought it was humorous that within the first two minutes of the video, uh, he smiles and says, "We found the the Midway Pac-Man parts and operating manual." And he fl- he quickly looks and says, "Oh, we're going to keep this." You know what was in that manual? Instructions about how to open the machine without destroying it. You know that you know that the latches and the door in the back, so you can actually get in there, get at the board. You know, take the monitor in and out. You know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, the coin door in, in the front. You can quickly get that rekey if you want to open the coin door up and look at the coin there. The whole point is obviously you can know what's inside a fucking arcade machine by either looking at pictures online. Looking at the freaking uh, operating manual in his hand, or by actually opening the machine up without destroying it, you can easily learn what's in there. And it's not a huge, huge amount of parts either. It's not like opening up, you know, a computer necessarily, even though it has some of the, you know, you got the ROM board, you got your monitor. But it's not like this is like so intricate that the only way we would have known what was inside of this was by cutting the fucking thing in half or, or just destroying it entirely. That's what's so silly about this. What's even sillier, though, is that this channel actually exists, which means I have no faith in humanity since they think that learning means watching some some fool destroy stuff for no good reason. That's how they want to learn. What's more discouraging, though, is that there are actual channels out there with people that actually have knowledge of of the items that this guy's destroying who are not getting any views. And yeah, woe is me. One guy's getting all the views and attention. Other people aren't. But it's just, to me, it's just... I don't know, is, is, this, is, is Rome burning now? That we think learning is watching a guy destroy stuff. Unless you're out there, you actually get some sort of satisfaction uh, to see some guy destroy, uh, a lot of times, perfectly good stuff. In this case, a perfectly fine uh, Miss Pac-Man machine in a Pac-Man cabinet. Like, if you think that's fine, good on you. I don't, you're probably not listening to the, this podcast, though, because that's not the audience I cater to. But yeah, there's there's arcade channels out there, people that restore machines. If you want to learn about our, our arcade machines and what, the inner workings of how they work, uh, I'm, I'm almost flabbergasted. Actually, I am flabbergasted because uh, it's, it's just it's just it's almost it's not sickening. It's more like I can't believe this happened. I'm sure there's other people out there that looked at some of their videos. Let's see what else have they uploaded here. You know, they they have a pretty good destruction upload schedule. They destroy about two things a week, or a few things a month. Yeah, they just, they destroyed a giant teddy bear because you know it, it's a, it's a total mystery what they fill those things with. Um, the one I watched almost its entirety. Oh, they destroyed a VR headset. Uh, what's inside a turtle shell? I try to give it a chance. I actually did. I watched the what's inside a 4K video camera one, and the very knowledgeable. He 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 knew all about about uh, you know the CCDs inside the camera. You know what type of lenses are there? Oh no, he just said, look at the different layers of glass. Look at the microprocessor chips from cutting his camera in half. Again, you're gonna say, Pat, it's his property. He can do what he wants. Yes, of course, I can destroy all these games on on my wall if I want. Is it sensible? Is it reasonable? Does it make fucking sense to do it? That's the question. It doesn't. It just doesn't. 
When you have, I think the big takeaway from watching the Pac-Man uh, cabinet destruction video was him, uh, his comment, some kind of amplifier for the energy. I think that it was the biggest technological discussion point I think uh, this man brought up during this. But, you know, good on you. Good on everyone out there giving this guy's views, uh, you know, so he can make, you know, I don't know, he can make his, his uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars off his YouTube channel to encourage him to buy more shit to destroy. So, so you jackals out there can enjoy that. And then the cycle continues. Not you guys jackals watching the CU podcast. But uh, just a, a fucking terrible video. And, you know, and then you go from that to the guy who was the father of Pac-Man uh, passing away a, a week after that. It's, it's just more unsettling the more I thought, thought about both things here. I just, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't understand the person doing it. I don't understand why they think, how they think this is ethical or right. And I don't understand why people fucking watch this shit. Pretty interesting to see mainstream uh, media cover video game collecting, let alone this video game collecting. The New Yorker, the old-timey publication, ran an article online by Simon Parkin, The Unexpectedly High-Stakes World of Neo Geo Collecting. Now, we rarely talk about Neo Geo Collecting on the podcast for two reasons. One, uh... There's really not many out there that really are actively into Neo Geo collecting. And two, I'm not into it. Ian's not into it, so we don't have a lot of knowledge of it. I do have some Neo Geo games. I do have an AES. I have a consoleized uh, MVS I want to start playing. So I do have a cabinet now I want to restore. And obviously, I loved Neo Geo as a kid. I played in the arcade. It was one of my favorite things to go to an arcade and, you know, play uh, King of the Monsters, play Puzzle Bobble, you know, uh, Super Spy. That even that first run of games uh, back then, baseball stars, you know, back then. It, it's hard to talk about this stuff though, just because you're really getting into the weeds of a very, very smaller, very small collector community who have very, very big pockets that I'm not a part of and never will be. It's just, it's a world that I'm scared to uh, enter. I don't have the pocket books to, to, to enter that market to spend, you know, $3,000 for a rare game or 10000 there and 20000 there, and then it just starts piling up. It's just not me. So this article follows uh, Sean McCleskey, who runs NeoGeo.com, and he used uh, Inheritance in the 90s to... Uh, buy Neo Geo games all the way back then when they were, you know, still available new and they weren't as coveted as they are now. And so what happens, you know, 20 years later, big business, he has a collection still, he's selling these games for tens of thousands of dollars uh, each in some cases to other collectors. You know, so he's in a good spot because of that. If you wanted to be a completionist for Neo Geo, Man, you talk about we talk about NES being tough. Neo Geo's insane. Uh, Atari's insane to be close to being completionist uh, because some of the games there's only a handful of, if at most. But a Neo Geo, forget it. What's the big one? My my Zuna Encounter. What is that even going for nowadays? Thirty thousand. The problem with with Neo Geo games is there's two problems because because by the time the console version of these arcade games came out, no one had the console anymore. So the console came out six was six hundred plus dollars, not including the games. The games at the time were what one hundred and fifty dollars, two hundred dollars U.S. 
back in the early 90s, yes, they were the exact arcade games. That was, of course, that was the draw of the system. That was the draw of the system for me. There's no way in hell I'd ever be able to get it, but it was like, this is the Cadillac of video game consoles. So you'd stare at your service merchandise catalog. You stare at that picture. I still remember the setup. You know, Magician Lore, I think it came with. And then it was always advertising a few other games, you know, like Super Spy or uh, Samurai, not a Samurai Showdown. It might have been too early. Maybe Samurai Showdown if we're talking like 93 or so. Uh, Mizuna Encounter? Kaizuna Encounter. Let's see, I'm not a Neo Geo expert. I said it wrong. It's Kaizuna Encounter. Yeah. So these are all good games, though. That's the big difference between this and collecting for Atari or NES is that almost all the Neo Geo games are high quality. It's not like you're going to get a, a a great Waldo search Neo Geo game. You're not even going to get a, uh, let's see, you're not even going to get something like uh, Cyberball on the Neo Geo, something that could be passable. It's just a ton of fun games. So I can see the draw there as well. But again, by the time a lot of these games came out from for the console version, there was no market to sell these to, so they didn't make that many. So then you have... Uh, Games that already go for a lot of money, they don't make a lot, and now you have these collectors all with deep pockets fighting over the limited supply of some of these games where they make only 10 of per region. And that's the other thing about Neo Geo collecting that's really strange is the, you know, people have to collect the European versus the North American version versus the Japanese version, and it's tough with these bootleggers and counterfeiters out there who go and cannibalize uh, not only the uh, the MVS uh, carts. They just take the chips out of them. They can throw them in to another uh, AES cart or make their own AES cart or cannibalize the parts. Then you have high quality reproductions of the inserts and the manuals and the cases where it gets to the point where there are people that have been duped. This is before this article that I, I saw in the past years. People were duped for we're talking uh, four figures and five figures on games. People losing a ton of money uh, over counterfeit games, which is why, I'm, why it's important, though, uh, to go back to this. And I'm, I'm glad this article was written because it's not there yet. But the NES could be could be there. It won't be there though, but it could be there uh, because these games are so much more widely available and they sold so much more. You know, you'll never get that sort of sort of uh, space where oh, the, the common games are going for eight hundred dollars. You know, for the AES, you're just not going to see that. Uh, but it's the same mentality of scumbags out there, counterfeiting games, tricking people, the concerns about authenticity of rare games. It's all the same. It's just on a much smaller scale for less money. While I have to be worried about, I don't know, a counterfeit, uh, a little Samson, I could be out $700. What about if you're out 10 grand, 15 grand, 20 grand for a game? Scale matters. Then again, you try you screw someone out of fifteen thousand dollars. That's federal fucking time right there. You're going to hard ass prison. That's not just a fucking PayPal dispute. Then you're going to be caught. Oh, trust me, either that or someone's going to send a hitman after you. You screw someone out of twenty grand. These are game collectors that have hundreds of thousands of dollars to blow. You know, so just saying, this is a weird thing. But but some of the highlights from this article before I ramble on forever about this, about this. Again, I'm not overly familiar with. You have, for example, a, a service. A guy in the community that wants to remain nameless because he, people send him games just so he can authenticate them. Because people are that wary of the market. And this is after they buy them, though. 
They sent him to him. Uh, da, da, da. Recent years, counterfeit Neo Geo games have become so widespread and, and the fidelity so high that one collector, fidelity meaning how real these games look, it's so much easier, unfortunately, or unfortunately, it's so much easier to, easier to counterfeit a $10,000 Neo Geo game Neo Geo game than it is to counterfeit a $50 NES game. It just, it just is. Because the cases are easier to do. They're just inserts in the plastic case. You can cannibalize the game parts easier, etc. Um, the fidelity is so high that one collector, a graphic designer from Palm Beach County, Florida, who goes by the name 8-Man, has begun offering authentication services to other buyers. So far, he has suspected more than 50 cartridges, so he's looking at uh, you know the labels, things like that. And has found many to be complete or partial fakes. In quotes, the bootleggers have ruined it all, he told me. I guess that's what happens when a million subscribers of some retro YouTube channel run to eBay, eBay to buy that gem they just saw in a video. Okay, well, I was with you until that statement. Because guess what? There aren't enough people out there to run to eBay and are going to spend you know three grand on an AES title. Not many people are going to be running to eBay to do that, and not many retro YouTube channels are focusing or even bring up Neo Geo because of the aforementioned things I say, because the price is ridiculous and they're hard to find. That's insane. Anyone out there in the comments listening, please let me know what what YouTuber with a million subscribers regularly plays Neo Geo games out there. Please let me know. Unless you're talking about someone... That played it on a, a virtual, you know, virtual console or eShop. But then again, that's not gonna. You're still not gonna get from that. Oh, oh my God! I'm seeing a Metal Slug X being played on on a Wii. I want to go out and buy the AES cartridge for whatever two grand. Is that what it's even going for? I don't know. I'm gonna check right now though. You see, it's just a kind of ridiculous statement on the surface. Metal Slug X80 conversion complete 325. That means that's not a real one. 100% authentic. $1,400, not a conversion. So that's what's interesting now, is that they've crossed over, even the bootleggers, since they know that collectors are finally on to them, uh, they are now just putting out repros. Just repros. Which is good, though, that people aren't going to get screwed. That's good. But you're going to you're in the same situation now where people are going to use them as placeholders. But I'm hoping that the inserts are done at least with repro on it, or... I don't know, authentic reproduction or something to differentiate. Because, come on, man. It's hard enough when people got to deal with NES repros. Now you got people out there, you know, dropping, you know, second mortgage money on a fake card. One person, a 40-year-old mathematics tutor from Thailand, says he spent at least $200,000 on Neo Geo games in the past 26 years. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Uh, In quotes, people who grew up hearing about the Neo Geo are now grown up and earning enough to chase their childhood dream. I I willing to chase it that much. I think that's the difference between these Neo Geo guys. Is a lot of these Neo Geo guys, they're collecting. And, uh, maybe they didn't have the console as a kid. They played the arcade, but they always just wanted it. So now I want to get that Cadillac game system and, and collect all the games for it. Woo! Being a completionist Neo Geo collector. My God. My God. The majority of bootleggers are based in France and Germany. Now they're more upfront. Blah, 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 blah. da 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 Today, most bootleggers don't bother to use original chips. Yay, that's great. They use modern off-the-shelf parts onto which game files are loaded. The experience is identical, one French bootlegger told me. And then uh, uh, one collector was mortified hearing about this, of course. I do hate the people making these pirate versions, he said. There you have it. So imagine if I was a Neo Geo collector. Uh, it wouldn't be the scumbag seller of the week. Uh, you'd have a, a hit squad out for these people. 
that are, are ripping people off for tens of thousands of dollars. Little slight difference, slight difference there. Now, this is a topic, believe it or not, I was thinking about this a few months ago when I downloaded every year or every other year, I try to download the updated uh, Tecmo Super Bowl NES ROM for the new rosters they, they do every year, the new hack, which are excellent, by the way. So they added in the, the extra teams. Um, sometimes they added in the pictures of the players into the game besides the player stats and everything else. But how about an updated NBA Jam? You had the version that came out on the console, what, in 2010? I remember playing a stuttering Craig on it one time. That was kind of random uh, on my Xbox 360. Probably the last time I turned on that console. But um, that version received, I think, mixed to pretty good reviews. I thought it was all right, a little too complicated compared to the original, but you know, I, I managed to beat it. It was fun for what it was. So it was worth like the 30 bucks I spent on it or whatever it was. But I, I thought about why hasn't someone updated NBA Jam? At all. Why not? Is it impossible? Is it too hard to, to change all the graphics compared to something like a Tecmo Bowl? Or people do with RBI Baseball even? Well, someone's finally done it. Uh, da, da, da. So the, the channel's called Hogs with a Blog. And this person hacked uh, NBA Jam Tournament Edition. Which is slightly better... It's, now, this is the Super Nintendo version, mind you. So, graphically, you're still not anywhere near where it should be. I am an NBA Jam snob, for the record. Uh, I loved this game in the arcade. Loved it. Fantastic in the arcade. However, however, Super Nintendo version, my, my friend had it, hated playing it. H hated the fact that the sound effects were simplistic. Hated the fact that uh, almost all the players look exactly the same for their faces, at least for the original NBA Jam. I don't know if T, they made it a little bit better with different faces. Uh, there's only two two different player heights uh, for for the console version, so that was weak. Almost no announcing. They didn't have the you know the, the space in the game. There's like maybe 13 different things to say. No player names are said. It's all just kaboom. He's on fire. Arr! You know, stolen. It's it's just not the same experience. No music during the gameplay. The original uh, NBA Jam Nintendo. It's just all silent, right? That's what I remember. Anyway. So it's cool that someone updated this. They put the digitized images in. They put uh, new new playable, unlockable characters. Uh, Harambe, of course, because that's that meme's still really fucking funny. Uh, Hillary Clinton is in it. Well, she was in the original with Bill Clinton. I think they both are in it. Uh, Michael Jordan's unlockable. And uh, yeah, you know, they updated updated the stats of the players. So this is it's, it's a cool idea to do this. It, it is cool, and it looks like the, some of the player faces are a little different. Some are bald different hair so that that's a good so that's an improvement over the original at least but um why not someone well before i get to that one someone go further oh uh, and also there's two teams that weren't around back then so uh da, 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 what are the two ones memphis and toronto uh are put into the rookie team they're combined so that's how you get to there uh the, the jerseys and logos are not updated uh this person couldn't figure out figure out how to hack and get into that i'm sure you could do it if you really wanted to uh someone out there could really do the uh, Tecmo Super Bowl treatment to NBA Jam Tournament Edition on Super Nintendo. But my my question is, uh, or my statement about this is, I would rather them go one step further. Maybe it's more difficult, but if you really want to do this right, you you freaking hack NBA, NBA uh, Hang Time. Because Hang Time is so much better than Tournament Edition. The Hang Time version for Super Nintendo has all the players uh, looking how they should, has better uh, music, graphics, features on it. 
uh, create a player mode. I think if you manage to do that, it would come out that much better. It's probably more. It's made it's more hard. Made it harder to do that though. Yeah, uh, hang time. I remember. I remember having fun with. You play the, the N64 version, and it's almost exactly like the arcade. Like it's so much fun with the four players, uh, four controllers. But the Super Nintendo one is still pretty good. It's still pretty good. And I'm looking at it right now. The gameplay. Yeah, the faces. The faces on hang time. Just the, about the three and a half more years they had to develop that game and really get to the maximum, you know, capabilities of what the Super Nintendo could do. That's a quality, that's a quality game. Animations are better. Uh, yeah, everything. Besides the fact that you have, like, you know, you have the fadeaways, you have the, the leaners, you time the blocks, so blo- uh, defense is more fun, and you have the, you know, you have the alley-oops. So all that stuff makes it just that much better of a game, in my opinion. Not in my opinion, it, it, just, it just is. I mean, it's just a better game. It's a better game. It's not technically an NBA Jam game, but it's, it's in the same universe you know it just doesn't have the title that went to i think it went to a claim by that point but um yeah maybe someone will get there you know listen to pat and uh, and hack that for me please hack nba hang time on super nintendo someone just hacked the rom someone hacked the freaking rom they did it back then they put michael jordan in one version of the game that is sitting somewhere in his house somewhere or maybe it's gone due to a gambling debt but you know let's 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 get on it yeah it's time for a few sponsors super audio cart Super Audio Cart is a virtual instrument for PC and Mac that lets musicians faithfully recreate the sounds of eight classic video game systems, such as the NES, Game Boy, Genesis, and Commodore 64. It works with most any music-making programs, like GarageBand or FL Studio, and even has received the endorsement of composers like Yasunori Misuda and Yuzo Koshiro. Sounds good. Hey, if these guys are doing that music originally, they think it's authentic. Sounds good to me. If you're into... You know, audio stuff at all. E likes to tinker. Uh, he probably had more uh, words about this if he was around. But yeah, check it out. If you want to learn about the Super Audio Cart, visit superaudiocart.com and tell him Pat sent you if you can. You can't tell someone that you visited a website, I guess. <laughs> Twincadia on YouTube. The YouTube channel Twincadia. Twincadia is an awesome reality show filmed in an arcade bar. When you mix booze, beer, and arcade games... Hell, I did that a few weeks ago with my girlfriend at a barcade. Yeah, why not? When you mix booze, beer, and arcade games with a staff full of geeks, you get serious entertainment. Check out their YouTube show to see an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at what it means to work hard and play hard, too. You know what? I might open up a barcade in my 40s. Why not? Maybe you can learn from them how to do it. If you love retro gaming, beer, and a little bit of jackassery, who doesn't love jackasses? Search for Twincadia on YouTube. That's Twincadia, T-W-I-N-C-A-D-I-A. And yeah, leave a comment and tell them Pat sent you from the CU podcast. Then you can leave a comment and tell them Pat sent you. You can definitely do that. It's Twincadia, Twincadia. Loot Crate. Oh, Loot Crate's back again. On a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than 20 bucks a month. When you're shopping for the geek in your life, or if you are that geek... You're the geek! Loot Crate is the best surprise you know is coming. Every month, there's a different theme and new exclusive items you can only get with Loot Crate. Treat yourself every month or give it, give a geek uh, friend. Got a geek friend? Give him that. Go to LootCrate.com slash Pat, enter code Pat, and save 10% on any Loot Crate sign up. Hell, I'm wearing a shirt from the last one. I'm wearing this Mario shirt from Nintendo. That's right, baby. The, the original since 81. Well, he was Jumpman then, but whatever. It's Mario, damn it. The February theme. Roll up your sleeves and get ready to celebrate some of pop culture's most put-together franchises. February 
February's theme is Build and features Muddy Morphin Power Rangers, Batman, Lego Dimensions, and Tetris. Ooh, Tetris. Wonder what could be in there for Tetris. Get it? You're building with Tetris. Batman builds and tinkers stuff. Power Rangers build their their Megazord from the other ones. Yeah, that's it. And of course, Lego. I, I can't see how building fits in it with Lego. Anyway, you always get your monthly T-shirt and the pin. Hell, the T-shirt's worth it alone for the most part. I I see people wearing the T-shirts all the time. I'm wearing it right now. Like I said, you have until February 19th at 9 p.m. to subscribe and receive the uh, build crate. After that cutoff, it's over. Again, go to lootcrate.com slash pat. Open, open. Oh, you open your crate, but you're going to enter code pat to save 10% on that crate before you get it. Good news, everyone. Nintendo's figured out how to market and advertise stuff. According to reports, well, it's not just reports, it's online. There is going to be a Nintendo Switch Super Bowl commercial. That is a commercial during the big game. I like how the NFL forces everyone to say that instead of Super Bowl because they have that word trademarked and they will sue your ass if you use it even to advertise Doritos at your local supermarket. I'm not making that up. But uh, this is a good move for them, obviously. and something I suggested a while back. I don't remember there being any mainstream Wii U commercials. I, t- I said this before, it's a broken record. I remember seeing three or four commercials in total, like the Christmas season of 2012, but after that, nothing for the Wii U. So, st- moves like this. It's not it's not cheap to get a Super Bowl commercial, but it's obviously worth the $20 million or so, $30 million, whatever it is, to push the product out. It absolutely is. Because, again, everyone's watching the Super Bowl, and it's not just you know hardcore sports fans that watch the Super Bowl. It's like the new national national holiday. Kids watch it. Uh, everyone does. Families. Even if you're you know if you don't if you don't like the Super Bowl, uh, my pal Eight Bit Alley a couple years ago came over from Australia, and she was visiting, and you know if I had to keep Frank away from her, but you know she enjoyed watching the Super Bowl. So the commercials are such a big part of it now that. If you if if you're not a sports fan or Super Bowl fan, you may scoff. Like, oh my God, well, that's not going to do anything. No, it's going to do something. Trust me, it's going to get a buzz about it because these are people going to be advertised to that haven't thought about Nintendo uh, maybe in the last 15 years. Now, if they had the NES Classic Edition, oh my God, and advertise that during the Super Bowl, you'd probably sell 10 million if they had them in stock uh, at, at within a, a couple of weeks. But this is great, and the commercial is pretty good. I mean, it, it sort of hits on. The fact that this isn't a kid's console, it, it has, again, that, like, 25-and-a-half-ish person, you know, happens to have their own nice place. You know, it's all clean. They're kind of hipsterish, but, you know, they're kind of average, but they're, they're still good-looking and stuff and attractive enough to, uh, you know. So uh, it goes from the handheld, you know, playing Breath of the Wild, to boom, into the dock, and then the screen lights up. I think that image alone is important, because I think that's very key to the marketing of this device, where people are saying, well, they should focus on it being a handheld, or focus on it being a regular home console. Well, just focus on both. You can do it in in an easy way, and that's the the best way to do it. Hey, throw it in the dock, boom, it's on the TV instantly. You know I mean? What else do you want at that point? Well, you got the TV on, I guess, right? Unless there's some way to auto-sync the, the NES dock into that. The specs, by the way, of the NES Classic Edition, uh, Classic Edition, the specs of the NES Classic Edition, there's like only 14 out there. The specs for the Nintendo Switch have been somewhat released. And it's interesting that um, Eurogamer, Eurogamer came out with the specs, and uh, I'll just go over, over it briefly, just because this isn't that much of a meaty topic, just talking about the Super Bowl uh, commercial that much, even though I think it's a smart commercial, and yes, they're advertising Breath of the Wild as well as Nintendo Switch. But according to the Eurogamer stuff, you you basically have uh, d- 
the same clock speed when it's in handheld mode, uh, CPU clock speed versus handheld mode and in the dock, but the graphical speed, graphic GPU speed, uh, doubles or I think it's like doubles or triples when it's in the dock, which makes sense because you want to limit the battery, uh, you know, the battery usage when it's on the go. And if you had it to full graphics potential, it would drain that, drain that sucker like in an hour. So you can't have that. So it's interesting though, that in this gambit that Nintendo's doing where they are sort of forcing their public, their own, their own cells and their publishers to make sure that the games are running at the lower 720p resolution, but also at less graphics and at less intensity in terms of the graphics to make sure it has to run both on the, on the uh, handheld mode. And then when it's docked for the TV. So it's almost like they have to develop not two different games, but it's almost, we're getting into that sort of same territory with the Xbox one and the Scorpio, you know, and the PS4 and, and the, you know, the Neo and all that stuff. Wait, it's PlayStation, the Scorpio. I don't even know anymore. Xbox one S. So anyway, the whole point is that they're, they're sort of tag teaming onto that where these publishers might have to, you know, be very careful. And this might keep some, some publishers away because maybe, maybe, and, and from early guesstimates, the, the switch, at least when it's docked is almost as powerful as like an Xbox one, or it's in that range. People are saying, of course, until you actually see it and see what the games are on it, you can't tell, but people are confident saying that, yeah, it's in that ballpark of an Xbox one, but it definitely ain't when it's, when it's out of the dock and, and when you're just playing it on the handheld itself. So that creates a problem then. It's it's almost getting back to that, you know, sort of low. We have to come up with a whole new version of this, like like we, they did with third party games on the Wii. But let's hope that like they can finagle it. Let's let's hope that you can get some games that are good enough to still be on the Xbox One because they're going to be making games for the Xbox One for a few years, not just you know the upgraded versions. Uh, let's hope that they can sort of get that onto the the. Um, the Nintendo Switch, at least in the docked mode, and then the handheld mode will look like an Atari 7800 game. That's what I'm guessing. But uh, anyway, Super Bowl commercial's cool. Uh, I'm really curious to seeing the reaction from people who haven't, again, haven't uttered the name or word Nintendo since the 90s and see what they think about it, uh, about the commercial. But I think it's, it's going to do pretty well. I think it's straightforward. It shows The Legend of Zelda. And it shows that hipster 25-year-old in the future Nintendo dystopia where they kill everyone at their 30th birthday. We have an update. Oh, we have an update for the NES Classic Edition. Woo! So they hacked it more so to uh, a new version where you are now allowed uh, no more game limits because they figure out how to upload them in batches. I think it's batches of... uh, 60 games so you can just do a batch upload and get them on there instead of only just doing the one batch of adding the 60 so this is good news this is getting to the point where i'm actually start to look into this more i'm like okay if i have a free few hours or people say it takes a half hour whatever the whole point is that if i have a rainy day rainy day sunday afternoon rainy day that's too specific if i have time to do this at some point i think i'll at least do this and try it um i have i have one as well just in case, in case I break the first one. But this first one's probably going to go to someone that wants it and add the games that they want. But uh, it supports folders and pages now for the hack. And this is the Hackshi. Hackshi uh, 2.11. So you can have folders and pages, which I think is good because I think one one of the things that people weren't taking into account uh, with the original, with 90 games, you can scroll through that fairly quickly. 
How are you going to scroll through the NES Classic Edition at that speed with 600-plus games? That's going to take you a few minutes to get to a game. That's not going to be a quick a quick one. There's no, like, fast scrolling feature on the NES Classic Edition. I mean, it's, it's, there's, no, like, there's no, like, skip 50 games or skip 100 games. Let's say put that in. That'd be cool. So it's good that you can have folders, I guess, for the letter. That'd be great. Uh, it'll automatically create and sort games uh, alphabetically. Great. Great. Uh, there's 655 games that they verified according to this update with no errors. We're getting there. We're getting there, folks. They're they're working their way. They're drilling inside of this bad boy uh, to doing that. But that's still six six hundred six hundred is respectable. But hey, I want to play Action 52 too. You know. Um, but now they're getting to the space limit. Uh, 512 meg of free space that you can use on the NES Mini. Da, 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 da. And you can probably get. This is from the commentary. You can probably get over 800 ROMs into it before damaging it. Always make sure to back up the original kernel before making any changes. So, okay, here's a list of the updates to this version. Uh, da-da. Yep, you have the folders page support. No more games limit. Automatically create folders and sort games alphabetically. Tested with over 600 ROMs. Everything working, including save states. You can select maximum games per page folder, but it's recommended to limit it to 3035. Uh-oh. So you can't just do like a folder with all the S games. Multi-step uploading. Uh, da, da, da. Hack, hack sheet 2 will split up the uploads and upload in sequence uh, in the kernel. Uh, mass cover downloading. That's pretty cool. You can download covers for all games at once using first image on Google. What if that first image isn't accurate or isn't a cover? <laughs> IPS patcher can enlarge ROMs now. Uh, da, 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 da. That's, for, that's for the largest... ROMs out there, probably like the uh, Koei games, for example, are usually the larger ROMs. New patches for problem games, new confirm mapper. Uh, so they're, they're starting to get there. We'll see. Support for some bad ROMs. Full Famicom Mini support. Japanese font customizable original games list. Oh, so you can actually get the Famicom Mini stuff off of that, not to the NES Classic, Classic Edition. That's because it's the same guts. That's pretty cool. Auto Fire. That's really sweet. Auto fire. Hold select plus A and B for a second to enable auto fire. Da, da, da. Also, X Y buttons on the on the classic controller will now act as auto fire A B. Shit! What if I want to use those X Y just as regular A B though? Hmm. I guess it's during the menu menu can disable that. The start button simulation for the second controller. Hold up plus A plus B to press start. It's a workaround for some USA games on Famicom Mini. Oh, I see. If you want to play like, um, you want to play uh, a Nintendo World Championships, that's the way to do it with only one controller. Uh, did I disable menu music. Why do you want to disable the menu menu music? It's bubbly, and then other stuff. Oh, where's the home button? Is that? I thought they were gonna put the home button in. Am I missing that with this one? I heard that they 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 cracked that. They got the home button command now. Oh man. Oh well, they'll get there, I guess. All right, so I'm I'm there. I'm on board. I don't need my retro pie or my uh. Uh, my PSP, forgot that last time, PSP, you can get all the ROMs in there. Or my little little Chinese knockoff phone that acts like a smartphone or PSP device. I, my, my, my friend John has one of those, I recommend one. Those are, those are pretty cheap. They basically act like little devices you can load on emulators and stuff, and they have buttons. They have buttons, they have buttons, sounds, and screens. All right, yeah, classic edition, hack this. Someone has done God's work. And has cataloged a complete Nintendo Wii set of games. 
user Nintendo Twizer, Tweezer, Nintendo Tweezer on Nintendo Age posted uh, his ever game made for the Wii, which is 1,262. So it doesn't include the variants, the demos, the two packs, uh, and the Netflix disc. Uh, the Netflix disc, you needed to run Netflix. I think I have that somewhere. I think I found it at the Swamp Meet. One game was released in 2016, Just Dance 2017. Uh, that's They're pretty confident that's it. I mean, I can't picture at this point. It, it, pretty good run. There was re- games regularly on the Wii for like seven years about. So I think that's a good run. Very good run. So uh, let's go on to my... Website. <laughs> I love you guys. I love you guys. You guys are just a kick in the balls. I mean, that's what you threaten me on the website for, but you know. Um, <laughs> so let's go. Let's go. Let's 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 run through this and again. Thanks to uh, Nintendo Twizer Tweezer for doing this. Someone had to do it. Mike Edler did it for the NES back in the late '90s, and while it wasn't totally accurate, you have to start somewhere. Someone's got to get down to the nitty gritty and, and, and go at it. Uh, so North American set of game games, 1,262. Shared a spreadsheet because he's a nice guy. What does or doesn't count? We went over it before. What doesn't count? Um, this is just, he's, he has a little FAQ. Is it a good time to collect for the Wii? Hell yeah. He says, as any, any long-time collector will tell you, the cheapest time to collect for a system is when it's at its low point. And yes, the prior generation, if not two generations, is, is the low point. So in terms of collecting for the Wii, he's absolutely right. You're at a time now when, you know, a lot of these games are dirt cheap. There's a lot of ones out there that no one either knows about or cares about. It's weird that a system that has over 1,200 games isn't really, like, you can't start just rattling off, you know, even 100 Wii games that people care about, you know, or 50 games. it's, It's almost like it's the GameCube where you have, like, your few dozen games people care about, and then, but unlike the GameCube smaller library, and then you have a bunch of fucking shovelware that's like 950 fucking games, you know, after that. So that's where you're at, though. So if you want to get, get into collecting, you know, go for it. If you honestly want to collect it, in terms of the value going up, I'll get into that in a bit. So, uh, da-da-da. This collector said, uh, bought a ton of games for under $5, many in the dollar to $4 range. Uh, da-da-da-da-da. Didn't pay over 45 bucks for a single game. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and he bought him a lot of GameStop, buy two, get one free. Uh, this person's fascinated by the Wii because it's sold over $100 million. Uh, Yeah, it's a very successful Nintendo It's the most successful Nintendo console. Let's go over some of the lists here. He, there's a video put together of the top 40 rare, rarest Wii games. This is where I, I, I understand why you would do this. But I question the timing of, of picking just the 40 rarest. Because I think you're going to unfortunately influence people's buying patterns a little bit. Because, hell, there's not a lot of fucking Wii collectors out there. Out there. You might get some people just drop out and say, saying, oh, I want to collect the 40 rarest Wii games because this guy said that it's rare and I want the value to go up on it. So you might get some weird art- artificial inflation from this. Uh, you know. Uh, I'm going to take one of the games right now and look at uh, the cost of it. So, you know, it's it's tough to put a list together like this because you're at a stage now where there's still stores selling these games brand new. I'm not talking about necessarily like a GameStop. I'm sure if you go out to some 
electronic stores, they have new old stock in the back. It's still on display, some of these games. It's in clearance uh, bins at some stores. Uh, some supermarkets probably have Wii games there still. You know, these games are not all accounted for by a fucking launch, long shot, especially given the fact that such a weird percentage is like shovelware and sort of caching games. You know, we're talking Atari Atari 2600 stuff here where, oh, you gotta, uh, you know, you can, you, you figure out how to, how to work a game where you move your hand around. All right, this is the, the 10th bowling game for the system now. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, this is a system that's like a mile wide and an inch deep. That, that's really what the, what the, the, uh, the Wii is. There's one game on this list. Uh, list. This is the top 40 rares. Uh, let's see. Let's sing 2016. There's someone on eBay right now that's selling new old stock of it or just new stock. So it's readily available, and who knows how many copies. Uh, let's see. Let's sing 2016. We. It's only it's $22 sealed. $22 sealed. More than 10 available, 19 sold, and I, and I was tracking this game for a few months because this was the hottest game that's now going to be like the Steam events I saw uh, post, and it's like a ton of fucking copies showed up because this, uh, let's see, Closeout Goods, it's a wholesaler that gets stocked that no one wants, and they probably, they're sitting on a bunch of these games. So if they are, who knows? So it, it's tough to start labeling these games. Again, I'm not trying to put this this person down. I think where it's a little bit too soon. You can say, I th- I'd be more comfortable with someone saying, these are probably going to be the rare games over time versus these are probably going to be the more common ones versus saying these are definitely the 40th, 40 hard-to-find games. I, I think it's a little premature for that right now. We're not 20 years out from the system being released, and we're only uh, technically really about four years of it being dead and in terms of of, of uh, games being produced, we're less than a year of games being uh, less than a year uh, past of games being produced. So I, I'm I'm cautioning everyone when you when you collecting when you're collecting for a newer system, if you're going to collect, don't collect just for the rarity because I think you you can't really tell straight up that soon. I think you got to go at least two or three generations way behind before you can say okay, uh, my my fucking uh, five and five and dime store is there any five and dimes anymore my, my local store down the street has this Wii game it's supposed to be rare and they have 50 at the dollar store down the street they have you know 50 of this shovelware game and that i mean i can't imagine uh trying to gauge the rarity of these games based upon the fact that there's so much shovelware i remember going to my my flea market back in new jersey still in 2000 and when i still lived there in, uh, let's see in uh 2009 2008 there was tons of new shovelware, even at the flea markets. It somehow got there even from the stores to the flea markets, selling Wii games, just in these boxes. Like, it was just garbage, you know? So, let's see. Let's let's just see what else he has to say here. But uh, that's what I'm going to caution about just that, though, right now. Um, yeah, this is very uh, r- very rare list of games, uncommon games, common but desirable uh, then the complete Wii set, which it looks impressive, and he has all the multicolored Wiimotes, which is pretty cute. Which is pretty cute to me. Uh, yeah. So, if you're going to collect for a system, he does it for the proper reason. He, he He's doing because he loves the the Wii. He's, he has an interesting story behind it. Don't collect the Wii if you think it's going to be worth, you know, a million dollars, you know, 20 years from now, or it's going to be like the NES, or su- even Super Nintendo, or even N- N64, which is rising a little bit, but, you know, I, I don't think that's going to go up forever. Just because, again, shovelware, 
tons of games. A lot of these games are not desirable. We look at some of these very rare games, okay? At the very least on the NES, a lot of the very rare games are fun. A lot of those title, late uh, late releases, you know, um, Little Samson, you get like Bonk's Adventure, you get Panic Restaurant. You know, you have some solid ones there that, okay, if I want to dish out a lot of money, these are these are at least fun games. And even with the very uncommon games, you can, you can find that. Because a lot of the later releases, once you get to like 92, 93, they only put out some games that, hey, these are games that, you know, uh, more limited. Like Mega Man 6 is a little bit more limited than the rest, you know. But on this list, you have stuff like uh, National Geographic Challenge, Chuck E. Cheese Sports Games, uh... Cyberbike Cycling Sports, American Mensa Academy. Uh, there's about 15 different racing games on here from the top four. four. Burger Bot. Okay. So Fritz Chess, <laughs> Aqua Panic, Get Fit with Mel B. Oh, Mel B from the Spice Girls. All right, I'm on. I'm on board with that. So what what you're gonna see though then is maybe those. 20 or 30 completionist collectors, even if, you know, if there's, if there's going to be 30 Wii completionist collectors out there, I'll be shocked, at least this year. Give it 30 years and maybe you're going to have all those kids that finally remember playing Wii Sports going out in their, in their 30s when we were in our 70s and then buying it. You know what I mean? Like, and buying all these. But even then, I don't see that happening because these weren't games that were, were, were ubiquitous at all. There's, there's no way you could have known all these games were being released. You know, it's not like Nintendo Power was going to be advertising... You know, uh, my horse and me riding for gold. And maybe they did, but you see my point. Of there's too many games coming out from them to really track all of these, all this uh, garbage that's on this system. Then there's common but desirable games. I think that's where this is going to end up. I think the Wii is going to end up where you're going to have everyone rush to get those hundred or so games that people actually care about that want to play, and that's like Kirby Dream Collection, Godzilla Unleashed, uh, Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn. You know, so. Samurai Showdown Anthology. Ooh, that's a cool idea. I think I want to get that. So, see, then even I'm intrigued by some of these, where it's like, oh, okay, obviously games like Xeno, Xenoblade Chronicles. You know, uh, you have your Metroid Prime collection on there. You know, that trilogy collection. You know, stuff like that, I think, is what people are going to want to come back to uh, for this system. So, congr- let's, let's everyone give a big hand to this individual. Oh, his name's Aaron, actually. Aaron, good job, buddy. You did God's work to get us to a good, uh, more than good starting place, and we'll see... Uh, we'll see how many people get on board with the Wii going forward. Forward, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, how this how this um, gets tweaked. If there's any more games that might be found or not, but probably not. You know, it's easier to track through. You know, nowadays how, nowadays how many more game, how many games came out, and I don't think there were licensed Wii games. You know, so it'll be interesting though to see, like I said before, what games will go, will drop. From being you know uncommon or rare just to being common when they find you know you know a, a box of a thousand of, of one game in the in the uh, forty rarest games, which is totally possible. You know, finding a pallet of these games or just boxes scattered scattered all around the U.S. like my pal Tim Atwood. Here we go, folks. There was a video put out by uh, former associate of Pat Countries, uh, Matt Pat, um, called Deadlock, which I guess is a series he has. And I guess it's like uh, it's some sort of debate show. There's, there's, there's high production qu- uh, quality. There's CG and stuff and little pixel art. It's cute. It's cute. Um, 
And this one was interesting because this was not not the first but second time that Reggie Fils-Aimé was on, uh, on there. And this was a talk about Nintendo. And should Nintendo abandon consoles is the name of the video. So it's it's one and the other. You don't know if they're in the same room. I think they were in the same room in front of a green screen, actually, because you can see one the hand of one person, the other shot. Should Nintendo abandon consoles? And it, it's it's a silly premise. So I'm not going to get on uh, my pal Matt Pat. I'm not going to get on Matt Pat for doing the video because hey, it's a job. I doubt he uh, wrote all the script. He wrote part of it. It was presented to him, and he hosted the fucking thing. You know, and Nintendo saw it as a way to advertise the Switch because there was a chunk section in the middle where they're basically it's just it becomes an advertiser for the switch i mean it's, it's just blatant uh i'm not sure if it was paid or not but you know it's a blatant advertiser for the switch which is fine nintendo has to get the switch out there i want the switch to be successful you should want it to be successful too this it's fine it's absolutely fine but um there's some questionable logic going on in this video and it's not based 100 percent on my argument in the past about why the switch will be more successful for the than the game than the definitely in the wii u but We'll get into some points here. So, some points from the video I, I jotted down while I was watching it. So, one of the arguments that's brought up by Matt Pat in the video is that how the stock prices are spoken of. Uh, and he talks about the stock price spiking of Nintendo in 2015 when they announced they're entering the mobile market. But what wasn't spoken of in the video was the roller coaster ride. Of the stock price, how it shot up and back down when the whole Pokemon Go stuff was um, going on last summer, and how the stock stock uh, holders didn't realize Nintendo wasn't totally responsible for Pokemon Go. They only had a, a minor stake in it, and so they should temper their expectations on the profits at least a little bit. So that argument means to me is that the stock value should not be the main point of contention. It should be, what is the company's value? And yes, stock prices play into overall company value, but it's not the entire picture. It is a picture, part of the picture, though. And I think that's what should be the focus overall. If you're going to talk about stocks, you you got to talk about what's the value of your company now. You know, that's really the most important part of that puzzle to me. Uh, stock prices can flutter and go up and go, and they can be, and stock prices can be way overvalued anyway. So that's not a proper way to, to even argue, even fakely in a script to you know the president of a company. That just was weird to me. Well, the whole video was was weird. Let's get into, but anyway. All right. So Super Mario Run is brought up, and how the conversion rate wasn't the best. It underperformed. I'm not sure what standards. Uh, they were speaking to in that video that Matt Pat was reading off the script. What what numbers were they totally expecting for a ten dollar app, which is a little pricey? But what what we found out and has been released is that um, there was eighty million downloads, okay, and five percent of the eighty million paid for it, okay, ended up uh, unlocking it. So let's uh, let's do some Pat math here. Let's do some Pat math here. 80, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Pat Math's my favorite time. Not Matt Pat, Pat Math. <laughs> All right. 
So that means 4 million people, and again, this is not on any Android devices yet, which there's a lot more Android devices nowadays than iOS. 4 million times 10. That's a $40 million revenue stream right there in only two and a half months. That ain't bad for a game that they didn't put a lot of money or R&D into. You know, that's not bad at all. I would take that. I would definitely take that. That's better than nothing. They did not, there's not a loss on the, uh, on this app. There absolutely is not a loss. They're not operating at a loss here. Again, I don't know what Apple's cut is here if it's special, but even if their cut's only 70% the standard, um, $28 million. Nintendo has made a minimum $28, a minimum $28 million of gross revenue. So far, not including the Android ones, which will probably make the same amount, if not more, on overall. So, it's fine. And Nintendo announced they're going to do two to three uh, app ga- uh, new apps or games a year. So I think they're going to tap into that market just fine. That's that's okay. Uh, a good point that Reggie brought up, thank God, I was going to fucking tear my hair out, uh, was that, and one that I should have probably emphasized more in the past videos, is that Nintendo's really the only one doing hardware innovation anymore. They're the only ones trying to do new stuff with, with a gaming console. Or at least... Or at least taking the risks. Microsoft and Sony are basically sitting behind being, okay, what's Nintendo doing? Motion controls? Uh, is that going to work? Okay, we'll try to dip our toes in here. Okay. Uh, all right, we're going to do that. Microsoft and Sony's innovation with the PS4 and Xbox One is, okay, these are powerful gaming rigs now. They're, they're supercomputers. That's their innovation. There is no innovation. They're taking parts from that you can get in a PC and throwing it into a console. That's their innovation. Uh, as much as you guys want Nintendo to not uh, put out hardware anymore, what would you want the landscape to be then? You know, like, would you just want have either a PC or games? I could also play in a PC. But what's the point of having gaming consoles then? If that's the point, you might as well say, hey, Sony, Microsoft, you guys should go third party then, which Microsoft already has uh, for the most part because now a lot of their Xbox One games you'll be able to get on the PC as well, at least on Windows 10. So that's already done. But Nintendo ain't doing that. They ain't doing that. Too much profits to be had, potentially. They ain't going to give it up. They're not going to stop. And hell, they just even announced more NES Classic Editions. That counts as hardware, too, if you remember. Uh, Pat says at six minutes in, Super Mario Run is proof that Nintendo can still bring new ideas to the table. Super Mario Run was not a new idea. It was repackaging elements from new Super Mario Brothers U and then just shoving it somewhat eloquently, I will say, into a runner style, endless runner style game. So it's not a new idea. It's just that they're doing an app, and you just said before that they underperformed. So what are you really saying then? They underperformed on a new idea. They are bringing new ideas to the table. The the fact that their new console is a really a portable, but then hooks to the TV, the opposite of the Wii U, is really a fresh new idea. Uh, it says just for create the peripherals. All right, I think you're going to get into a weird. If you saw Nintendo start creating peripherals just for their certain games, I think that would be an awful idea. Because you'd have them dumped within a few months like you see all the freaking rock band and Guitar Hero equipment. Players don't want to have to shell out money that only work for very specific games. We are way past that. We are past there ever being that anymore uh, and having an appeal besides it being a fad like music games which had a small comeback, but still, that's not coming back. We're past that point. Even the Zapper on the NES, there was only a dozen Zapper games. 
you know, well, let's look at a certain NES uh, guide app and I'll tell you for sure. But there wasn't, thank God I have is I, I can not know, you know, not talk entirely out of my ass about this stuff. But um, we are past that point where there's going to be sort of marquee accessories just for a, a couple of games. I don't see that happening ever again. I think that if you do that, that would be an awful idea. That would hurt your sales because then instead of selling your game for only $60, if Nintendo went third party, now we got to go third party $60 plus you got to buy our $40 controller or our $80 controller. Who's going to do that for three to five games they really want versus buying a system uh, where every game has to then be used with that, with that controller set? It just doesn't make any logical or any business sense to do that. It just doesn't. You think, that, oh, they're going to make money anyway. They're not. The money's not going to come there. I mean, basically, when you're buying a Nintendo Switch, you're forced to buy the Nintendo controllers, so they're making a profit on that, but that's going to be used for every game on the system. I think that's a really backwards way of doing business where you're going to say, oh, just create the peripherals, and without really thinking about what's the actual market then. You know, I just don't, I like, that's just a weak idea, weak argument. Uh, going back to this, I, and, I, and I talked to someone on Twitter about this, about how, just how many... Uh, games Nintendo would have to make up in sales to cover the losses of not getting profits from hardware. Does anyone actually want to try and calculate that out? For I mean, for real. I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be snarky here. It's going to be a lot of fucking games, though. A lot. Uh, in my head with my pat, pat math, they would have to try to uh, sell five times as many first-party games to make up for that loss in console revenue. Five times. And you're not even counting at that point the loss of profit, and this is a lot bigger profit, for our, for those uh, extra controllers and accessories. And I know this mean just, just like, you know, um, those special controllers you want to sell on your own, but I'm talking about uh, that extra, extra power cord. That extra, you know, little uh, case... A controller case, you know, protector, extra, extra sensor bar, you know, stuff like that. That little stuff that people need sometimes, that money adds up quickly. You know, memory cards on past consoles, another, another good one where it's like profits up the ass on that. You imagine how much profit Sony made uh, from like PS2 memory cards. They're worthless and they were selling at like 10, 15 bucks a pop or whatever. Even if you think that the profit margin is smaller, uh, than games for console sales, which it is. The, the games make a lot more money than consoles uh, overall. Uh, peripherals and accessories make up for a ton of profit still. So you, you can't you can't do that. The amount, and plus, Nintendo is doesn't have that foothold. Nintendo's not in the position they are to have franchises. They're not like you could say, okay, Mario is the most popular sort of guy out there. But if you look at the sales, the most popular like game on the Wii, not even the Wii U, on the Wii did forty million on the Wii. And that was one game. That was uh, the Mario Kart Wii game. That was a big system seller, or, or the most popular game on that system. You know, Mario Kart uh, Wii. Uh, without looking at the list, it probably is. But there's not many more of those. I think like Smash Brothers did like ten or eleven on the Wii and the, and on the Wii U. Like not even that. Much, like half of that on the Wii U. So the proportions don't work out. There's no Call of Duty franchise. There's no Battlefront. There's no Madden that Nintendo's going to put out that everyone's going to run and buy anyway. So just saying, go third party, go third party, without actually thinking about how many more uh, games they'll push is really, really just thoughtless. Just thoughtless. 
Uh, uh, by the way, saying goodbye to hardware means saying goodbye to Amiibo. I know that you could try to sell Amiibo without the controller functionality, but uh, I, I don't see that working quite as well, even though people do collect these as toys, but Amiibo, again, we always forget about the Amiibo. How much money is Nintendo made off those fucking pieces of plastic? A ton. We, we go back to the argument about third-party support, and that Nintendo, you know, Nintendo not having third-party support is going to mean it's going to fail. Nintendo didn't have good third-party support on the N64 or the GameCube, and those did just fine. They turned a profit. Obviously, they weren't as big a success as they should have been compared to the competitors. Sure. Uh, handhelds were totally ignored in the video. I'm, I'm surprised Reggie didn't bring it up and say, hey, we got the 3DS. We got this 3DS thing that's made us a ton of money. 61 million of these bad boys sold. That wasn't brought up. Uh... And his other comment, he says, people don't want to shell out a few hundred dollars just to play a few select titles. That's exactly... Reggie should have said the video, what do you think the Xbox One and PS4 are? What, like, what do you think those are? Since a chunk of those you can play either on the other console or you can get on the computer. And everyone owns a computer. So, it's silly. It's just a silly argument. If you're going to... People are going to... If people really want to really play Breath of the Wild and, and buy two other games for the Switch, they're going to do that. You know, it's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime experience. There's not a Zelda game out every year to, like, what, every five years a major console Zelda game, something like that. So it's not like it's you're going to have to repeat it anytime soon for that. Another uh, quote I've got from here, almost every manufacturer loses money on console sales. Why not remove that risk entirely? Because the reward is huge for consoles. That's why, because Nintendo has made bank on all their consoles except for the Wii U. That's why you don't remove the risk. You remove the risk if you don't want to make money. You remove the risk. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Well, Nintendo ventured out with that Wii system and made billions of dollars from it. So, I mean, it's just a silly argument to bring up. Silly argument. The revenue from the Wii was roughly $20 billion. That doesn't count peripherals. doesn't count extra fucking Wiimotes that everyone went out and bought either. So, yeah, it, it, so if you're talking 100 million Wii consoles that sold, you also realize that means that at least, you, you sold at least 100 million Wiimotes, most likely, because everyone went out and bought a second one, or more than one, or just saving half. They probably sold 50 million Wiimotes, and then 50 million Nunchucks. Think about that for a second. Think about what that means, the revenue from that. That's insane. That is insane for that. Those little shitty uh, nunchucks that cost, what, $15 each? That cost Nintendo $1.50 to make each. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and I'm tired of people saying the Wii's an outlier. Like, the Wii's this giant outlier in Nintendo's history. The Wii's an outlier. Never mind the fact that the NES was a dominated the market. You know, when the NES was out, they, 90% of the market share was the NES. For the first few years, you know? Super Nintendo did gangbusters. You know, Wii's this outlier. Game Boy dominated the handheld market. Game Boy Advance, the DS, 3DS dominates the market. Yeah, the Wii's just a little outlier. Go away. Go away, Wii. Hardware is hardware. The strategy is the same overall. You want to sell the games on the hardware, you got you to make the hardware and sell it. And you get the revenue from both. Just silly. Just silly. N64 was a success too. Yeah, it was dwarfed by the PS1. It was still a success. Nintendo earned a profit from that. With all the controllers they sold, all the fucking memory cards and the little rumble packs besides their first-party games, 
It's just silly. It's just silly. By the way, the power glove was brought up at some point for some reason, and like it was pointed out as like for shame. Nintendo tried the power glove out. Uh, Nintendo didn't make the power glove. I'm not sure if the editor or writer of that video realized that. Uh, Mattel did the power glove. Where's my one out in the box up there? There it is. Mattel did it. So that's just a sort of a waste. It was a sort of a little waste. It was a cute little joke, but it was a waste. Uh, that's all. And then finally, the one thing that really annoyed me was that the comparison to Sega. Uh, and that's where Reg- Reggie should have just had a veto power on the script and be like, dude, don't fucking put Nintendo and Sega into the same paragraph, let alone the same sentence. False equivalency. Uh, it, w- it was awful about how uh, Matt Pat's argument was, well, the year after Sega left the console market, they turned the profit for the first time forever. Nintendo is not in Sega's position. The dire, dire straits that Sega... Sega had to leave the console market. They were bleeding money. They were in really bad shape. Nintendo is not in really bad shape. Nintendo is in good shape. Very good shape. You cannot start saying, well, go third party like Sega did. You can't do that because Sega doesn't have the properties that Nintendo has either. Sonic isn't Mario. Sonic's popular. Mario is ten times as popular. Uh, Legend of Zelda, what do you compare to that? Fantasy Star? Not in the same fucking universe of popularity. Uh, Smash Brothers, uh, Virtua Fighter? Fighting Vipers or something? Is it, was, that was that Sega, right? Like, no. No. Mario Kart, what's your comparison? Uh, Daytona USA? Is there a Sonic uh, Kart racer I, I should know about? Uh, is... Uh, Crazy Taxi, yeah, that's as popular as Metroid, isn't it? You see how silly it gets when you start just throwing out statements like, oh, they should just go third party. Because of that, they have a draw to get people to their first party games, unlike Sega did at the end. If if Sega if Sega's games were a draw, the Dreamcast would have been a much bigger success and Sega would still be around. But it was, it didn't work out. Besides uh, other mismanagement, though, it didn't work out. Not everyone needs to play, you know... um, the, the next Crazy Taxi or the next uh, Sonic game. Everyone needs to play that Breath of the Wild or that new Mario Kart game. Those are system sellers. The new Super Mario Odyssey game, that's a system seller. Sonic Adventure, uh, n- not everyone needs to play that game. I'm sorry. It's just, that's just, that's just, the, just the way it is. Uh, the smartphone revolution, which I laugh at, that was brought up in the video, and that if it hasn't taken over a game by now, it's never going to happen. Sorry. You can never totally emulate the experience of playing a game on a PC or on a console on a fucking phone. It's just, I fucking hate that. The most popular mobile games are totally different experiences than the most popular console and PC games. There's no popular fucking first-person multiplayer shooter I'm playing on my mobile phone. I'm not playing a Mass Effect game, uh, you know, a third-person, huge adventure game. That's not going on your phone ever. Sorry. That's not happening. Just not. Your phone will blow up like the freaking Galaxy you know, uh, Note 7 or whatever because of the drain and from the too much processing power. I, it's just silly. There are two entirely different markets for and two entirely different sets of games for the most part on that. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I hope I can get Reggie on a video sometime. But uh, I'm glad that Reggie defended himself. I'm hope, hoping, hoping that he wrote a lot of that himself or with help from Nintendo because a lot of those arguments in that video were just absolutely silly. and just They're just silly. How about a uh, 
strange Kickstarter. It's a Kickstarter for uh, an Apocalypse Now game. An, like an adventure RPG. From the key team members, not the producer, like main producer, key team members uh, of, from, of Fallout, New Vegas, Wasteland 2, Far Cry, and a lot of RPGs. A Kickstarter. Uh, Apocalypse Now, what was that, 74, 75? Francis Ford Coppola directed it. Apocalypse Now. I don't think he's directed much in the past 20 years. Um, based upon Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which I read in high school, that took place in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. They moved it to the Vietnam War for this. Oh, 1979. I thought it was earlier for some reason. That was like 75. 1979, Trail Production. Production took like forever. Uh, multiple cuts of this movie. They, they filmed a ton of this. I still have not seen it all. I will at some point. Frankel gonna, is going to punch me if he hears that. Uh, in a certain NES guidebook, I, I spoke about how it was strange to do a Platoon NES game. It was also on the computer. Same vein as Apocalypse Now. At least that Apocalypse Now is going to be on the PC and not a, a kiddie console like the NES, you know, for the most part. But this uh, Kickstarter is asking for $900,000. So there's a video that was put up minute long. Uh, it, it shows it. There's some shots of uh, things you see in the movie. You have a uh, you know little little river boating action. You have the helicopters coming in here. It looks interesting. I don't know if there's a market for this game though. I just don't. Well, we shall see. Uh, in the description of the game, let's see. It's a heavy emphasis on an RPG-like narrative with branching outcomes. You explore the jungles and rivers of Vietnam in first-person perspective. You join a crew of, in quotes, rock and rollers with one foot in their grave. It's like Fallout New Vegas on acid in the middle of the Vietnam War. Ultimate mission is to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, a rogue American officer who's accused of forming a private army and operating totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct, which was a chunk of the Vietnam War, unfortunately. Combat is often your last resort. Uh... You play as Captain Willard, who was uh, uh, Martin Sheen in the movie. Uh, these are skills you can upgrade. They'll I- impact how you interact with characters you meet and how you navigate the jungle. Yeah, I'm just not... I guess I have to see more about this, but this is going to be a really delicate game to pull off. To sort of move... You know, sort of a psychedelic nightmare of a, of a Vietnam War film. You know what I mean? Like, this is going to be a weird... Uh, but hey, we'll see what happens with it. We'll see what happens. I wonder if Ian has seen uh, Apocalypse Now. I gotta sit down with Frank at least and watch this thing. It's time for the scumbag seller of the week. 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 This scumbag seller of the week happens to be someone that I found by myself by accident. Jay Cena, zero one two four eight three, or I guess for John Cena for short. And what were they selling? Why, a certain NES guidebook. They were selling Ultimate Nintendo, Guide to the NES Library. What? Alright, so obviously you can sell whatever you want if you own it. You have a game, you can sell it, use. You have a certain NES guidebook, you can sell it. That's not what the issue is here. The issue is they lied in the description. They lied. This auction is for the Ultimate Nintendo Guide to the NES Library, book by Pat Contry. This book has been sold out ever since the release of the NES Classic Edition console. Well, I wish I could take credit for that, but no, it was actually sold out after Thanksgiving. 
There is a pre-order for a second printing, but you'll have to wait months to get it. Ding, ding, ding. That's what's false. Because you know why? The book is back in stock. Pre-order it. Actually, not pre-order it. Order it at ultimatenes.com. It's back in stock, folks. So now is your chance to get the original book before any everyone else gets the reprint months from now. First of all, it's not a reprint. It's a second print. You know, it's not like it's unauthorized. I have the book in hand and ready to ship. The book is in great shape with some minor wear around the edges. Aha! You got wear around the age, edges from mail transit. Well, uh, but for all the uh, beautiful full-color pages aside, and the binding is mint. All right. So I understand you want to make your money back. You didn't enjoy a certain NES guidebook. You want to sell it and at least get back the 60 bucks you paid. And then you're for $102. You, but you basically screwed someone out of 40 bucks because... The book's back in stock. You lied about it. And I emailed you, sir. I emailed you before the auction ended saying, hey, listen, do whatever you want, but you're not giving the right information here. Someone's getting duped here. The book's going to be shipping out any day now. The pre-orders and the orders are start shipping again. So come on, man. Come on. Don't do this to me with my product. Come on. You're making it personal now. This is a personal scumbag seller of the week here. All of my items come from come free. All of my items come free, a smoke-free, child-free, pet-free home. Would your children get into... St- like, I understand smoke-free, pet-free. They're going to shit on your books? Your children are going to piss on it? That's kind of a... Uh, that's kind of a weird thing to, to say about that. Uh, I offer a 30-day return policy. Oh, please. Whoever won this book, please. I tell you what. Whoever wins this book... If you return this book and get your money back, I will mail you out there a free copy of the book. I will mail it to you, whoever won this item. Please, please, it, whoever is, you're, you must know me, or hopefully you know me if, if, if you bought this. If you return this book to Aurora, Illinois, to JCNA, 012-483, return it, get your money back. Get your $100 back. I will mail you a free copy of the book. It'll be mailed to you. I, I will do that. I obviously have to have evidence that you purchased this auction, but if you provide me the evidence, show me the PayPal transaction to that seller, I'll mail it to you. That's how much this bothers me. This really bothers me. Because not only because the information was false and misleading, wait months to get it. Eat my ass. It's not a month. It's not months. It's going out now. But the fact that I contacted them, they ignored me because they thought the extra 40 bucks. Uh, most likely that they got out of this uh, from this false advertising is worth annoying me. It's not. Their other items for sale are uh, just wrestling items, like fucking wrestling figures. I'm not saying... I'm a wrestling fan. Not all wrestling fans are assholes, but a lot of assholes are wrestling fans. Oh, yes. I see that in my Twitter feed, uh, and I see that... I see a good amount of that, even going to the shows. That's coming from a wrestling fan. Who keeps texting me? Don't text me during the scumbag sale of the week. Jesus. Let's talk about the uh, Royal Rumble, huh? So the Royal Rumble event, it's one of the only two events I watch every year. I mean, that I have to watch for the WWE. But it's fun because you usually have surprises. You know, there's some fanfare with the actual Royal Rumble event itself. It's a chance to see an old-timer come back or a surprise entrant like AJ Styles. Last year, 2016, was awesome, awesome debut. And he got a huge pop, which was great. My pal Kenny Omega is signed back with New Japan Pro Wrestling for another year. So um, 
He was not at the Rumble. Eh, maybe next year. But, you know, he put on a... By the way, Kenny Omega put on a f- 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 at least a five-star match at Wrestle Kingdom 11. Check it out. Just off the charts. 45 minutes and just and one of the best matches you'll ever see. Match of the year. Uh, early match of the year. But there are some good matches, though, at Royal Rumble. Uh, not a match of the year, but a very good match between John Cena and AJ Styles for the for the title. Um, I don't mind AJ Styles losing because he lost like a like a champ. Like it took an avalanche, AA, and Cena rolling through and hitting two more, uh, basically in a row uh, after after AJ kicked out of the avalanche AA in order to beat him. Like he really had to have the kitchen sink come out to beat AJ Styles. So AJ Styles is hugely popular, even though he's a heel, because it's because people respect the hell out of him, and he's the champ that runs the camp. He's the face that runs the place, which I think is endearing. I think they'll turn him face at some point this year. I think it makes sense to do that, even though I love him as a cocky heel. It's just he knows he's good, and he is good. But he lost, but he had a good run. He had the title for about, what, uh, three and a half months, you know, four months. That's that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's good. Uh, the Royal Rumble event itself, though, was lackluster. At this point, I mean, like every year, me and Ian complain about the Royal Rumble, how the winners stink every year, whether you're pushing Roman Reigns down our throats, you know, or Batista, which is one of the biggest wastes ever when Daniel Bryan should have won. It's just, they're really just not, they don't usually listen to the what the fans want. However, this year, the difference with the Royal Rumble was that there wasn't like a clear front runner or winner. There was rumors, but it still was like, could be like it could be like two or three different people that would have made sense, especially since now you have the brand split, which makes it even better, because now you can have a guy fighting for the title on Raw, Raw or SmackDown, which is one of the reasons why I'm glad they did that. Uh, but just a comment on the Rumble. The middle of the Rumble, nothing happened. Uh, it was great in the beginning because you had Braun Strowman come out at number, what, of seven or eight. Uh, and then he, Braun Strowman's re- the real deal. He's a big man, which you've seen big men before, but he has the charisma. He, he's, he's developing very well. I really like like what he's been doing, and he was the monster. Uh, the, you thought he was going to stay there forever, but they had to really probably get him out of there before they got like, you know, Brock and Goldberg in there. But too many big guys, you know, you got to protect them somewhat. So, Baron Corbin eliminated Braun Strowman. They're on different uh, brands. Don't entirely agree with that. I don't mind. I think Corbin is pretty good right now, but he's still a little. He's a little bit ways to go in my opinion. But uh, I didn't mind that. However. We have to stop with Roman Reigns. We just have to stop. He's been in the final four, but the final two, if not winning the last, what, four Royal Rumbles? It's The experiment has not worked. You wasted, you already wasted a Royal Rumble win on it and a WrestleMania uh, main event with Brock Lesnar. You already wasted that. And they didn't have enough confidence in that that they had to have Seth Rollins come in and cash it in because they knew putting the belt on, on Reigns would have been a disaster. So... They've tried to do it, put the belt on him later. Nothing. Fans don't care. Um, it's over. At least as a face. Now, as a heel, that's something different. If the fans will, will then change that we don't care energy or you're trying to push it down our throats enemy to, all right, now you're a heel we're supposed to boo, boo you. But then you can get into that X-Pac heat territory where it's not heel heat. It's we just don't want to see you at all in our TV heat. And yes, there is kayfabe, but but most of the fans nowadays are not kayfabe fans. They're smarks. They know it's a work. So it's tough. But they teased a fight with The Undertaker somehow. 
because uh, they allowed him to come out 30th. By the way, he came out 30th after he had fought earlier in the night and lost uh, earlier in the night, uh, lost fighting for the title. So how come he gets to be in the Royal Rumble match? Again, this is why the fans don't like it. He comes in at 30, disappoints everyone. What if that was AJ Styles that came in 30th? AJ wasn't even in the Rumble. And you can make the argument that maybe he should have been in there instead, at least get some of his heat back or whatever, but whatever, that's fine. But the fact that he's the final two again bothers me. It just it just does. I'm sorry. It's just he's not a moneymaker. He's not. They tried for three years. It just has not worked out. So he eliminates Undertaker. You're probably going to see an Undertaker, maybe an Undertaker freaking a Roman Reigns match at WrestleMania. That would be awful, especially if Roman Reigns won and doesn't deserve it. People are saying maybe we're going to have Cena fight the Undertaker, maybe. But at least at this point, though, it's still up in the air. But the the bad news is that before the match, I thought that Bray Wyatt would have been a great candidate to win it. He needs the rub. After starting out the first six or so months with volcanic sort of heat and people really getting into the character, they have him lose almost every single fucking uh, uh, feud he was in, whether it was Daniel Bryan, Chris Jericho. Was the only one, actually, Chris Jericho was the only one he won. He loses to Cena. He loses to The Undertaker. It's hard to think of the ones he actually won. I thought, okay, this is sort of a resurgence on SmackDown with him and Harper. And now with Randy Orton, who's, who has had a, had a great sort of, uh, sort of, uh, he's been great uh, teaming with the Whites. Let's give it to Bray. Have him run with the ball. But they had Orton win it instead. He eliminated Roman Reigns. So the rumors now that it'll be uh, Bray Wyatt somehow getting the title at the elimination at the elimination chamber match and fighting Orton at WrestleMania. I don't hate the idea, but I don't love it just because if you're going to give him. The WrestleMania treatment, uh, Bray, why not go the full nine yards and give him the Royal Rumble treatment as well? That's just my argument. Randy Orton's won the Royal Rumble before. He's a, what, 10-time champ or whatever. He doesn't need the Royal Rumble win. At this point, you should only have guys winning it that need that push. Either the, either the guy that the fans are totally behind, 100%, the premier star, which could be someone like an AJ Styles next year, you know, either do that or give it to someone that really needs it. And I don't think Orton is either. I just don't. So it wasn't it wasn't a bad it wasn't as bad as the last couple of years of Rumble, but it wasn't great either. Uh, again, in the middle, nothing really happened. Good start, decent finish. As, well, as long as Reigns didn't win it, I'm happy. Short Q and A time on the CU podcast. All right, this is from at Eric Rigsby. Uh, he just says the John Tron interview. Okay. So, uh, John uh, Safari, also known as John Tron, who I haven't spoken to since, I think, Con Bravo 2013, uh, which works into this, I'm not just name dropping it, it works into this conversation. So, John Tron's been pretty vocal politically the past few months. I think he did a Breitbart interview, which is, uh, is that alt-right? It's definitely right-wing-ish, if not alt-right. He's been starting to be vocal. He's been vocal in the past. Then he, then he, some, someone, someone's like tells him, John, don't say shit politically on Twitter. You have too many followers. Then people, you know, leave him alone. Then he says something again. But this time he's just going all in. He did an interview with, I guess, someone who's alt right, Sargon of Akkad. I've seen him around. He's one, he's one of these guys that gained, what, gained prominence. A lot of these guys gained prominence 
uh, with Gamergate being pro-Gamergate, and they got a following uh, by being sort of the opposite of the quote-unquote SJW voice. So I didn't read this interview or listen to I guess I did a stream where they talked about politics in Syria. I did see a back and forth between Peanut Butter Gamer uh, and, and JonTron on Twitter. They got into a spat uh, about stuff, and then politics got brought into it. Um, I guess he wants me to just comment on, like, in general. You can say whatever you want politically. It's just you have to be careful, obviously, how it damages your your YouTube career. If you want to take that risk, go for it. I mean, I thought about it myself, whether I should talk about politics more or social stuff and how much of my current fan base I'm going to piss off. You know, even if you're trying to be sort of even keeled, someone's going to get pissed off because you're not going far enough in one direction or the other. So so at some point, it's almost like you have to take a side. You know, I hate to say that in this environment. Social media is obviously the worst place on the, on the planet to talk about politics, though. I mean, social media should be sharing uh, g- uh, GIFs and, and cat pictures and, and you know, and, and just snarky replies to, like, trailers and shit. Like, to me, uh, politics, it's tough to dis- discuss politics on social media. And then you say that, and our fucking president uh, got partially elected for discussing politics on social media. Which, again, that's a whole other conversation. That's a conversation for the upcoming podcast, where I can talk about this stuff more freely without half my audience uh, jumping down my throat or the other half saying you're not going far enough in condemning or, or supporting this stuff. But that's where you're at. So, I mean, it comes down to artist versus art. If, if a YouTuber is out there that says stuff you disagree with, um, does that mean you should stop uh, watching their videos or following them? I don't know. It's up to you. You know, it, it's not like Roman Polanski, who freaking uh, sodomized a girl in the 70s and still, you know, and Hollywood still likes the guy. You know what I mean? Like, He's still, uh, he, he can't come back to the U.S. though, but I mean, like, people still think that's okay. Woody Allen has, has had a, a very questionable relationship with uh, people, uh, younger people in his life. Uh, I, I'm putting that as very delicately as I could, and he's still revered. People still love his works, you know, his Netflix specials and his movies. People watch him. Frank still loves Woody Allen, you know. Frank will still watch Roman Polanski's Chinatown. So can you separate the art from the artist? If not, then whatever, you can't. But we're at a point now where you, you have to, because everyone, whether it's actors, people on TV, YouTubers are very vocal about this stuff. It's become not more to- more toxic. No, I think it's just become more um, more of a lightning rod now that Trump's in office, that you have more people speaking up. You have these harsher sort of diverging opinions where you're going to see this. This is going to happen. So you can either ignore social media, which I recommend people do, honestly, because when I go to social media now, uh, half the time it's political stuff where I, I, I follow politics, but that's not why I go on social media. If I'm going to go that, I'm going to go on a site like, I don't know, like Real Clear Politics, which is sort of a compilation of political articles from all over, left, right, middle, it's everything. I'd rather do that versus what's what's trending on social media right now. Who are we going to boycott? What company are we going to boycott today because they supported one person or another? That's that's fucking garbage. That's meaningless in the grand scheme of things to try to keep track of that stuff or follow that. That is there today, gone tomorrow. That's nothing. But hey, if you want to follow, uh, you know, you want to stop following someone on, on Twitter because you don't agree with their politics, of course, that's why it's there. But to not look at their art, well... I mean, you might as well then not watch half the people on TV or don't see half the movies. Because I guarantee you there's a chunk, you know, even though Hollywood is 
uh, leans uh, heavily liberal. There's people out there that are not going to agree with musicians, uh, artists, whatever. So people you don't agree with politically. People in your life, people, there's friends, I guarantee you out there listening, there's a friend that doesn't agree with you politically. Either you know that or they're keeping it from you. Family members. There's family members I don't agree with politically. There's people that swing too left. There's people that swing too right for me uh, in my life. Um, good friends. People that I can talk to for hours that we always end up having arguments about. But you know what? I respect the people because I like them. I like their personalities. I like their, their, their good people. And I think that's what you have to remember. Uh, now it's coming a podcast. Um, you can agree with you can agree or disagree with someone politically, but what is what are they as a person? How do they treat other people that you know? That's what really matters. At the end of the day, that's a new pat term. That's what defines us: how you treat other people, how you conduct yourself. Political opinions can be varied; they can be even extreme in some cases. But I will take someone with a, an extreme political position if they treat everyone like fucking gold versus someone with political opinions I uh, agree with that treats other people like trash. I don't want that person in my life. Be a good person. Let's all just be better to each other. Schmaltzy, yes, but that's what I truly believe in. You start just treating each other with, with the same respect that you want, sort of these weird political disagreements that get blown up, I think they will be shrunk more and more naturally if we can stop with this fucking tribalism oh my god is that it for a cu podcast for tuesday uh february 1st 2017 no it's wednesday i'm recording on a wednesday i'm I'm late it's wednesday oh my god i hope i i don't have to go back and record the beginning of the show did i say tuesday february 1st it's a wednesday february 1st and again i'll be at the socal retro gaming expo this weekend in ontario california woo uh, the Android app is out. Woo! iOS one's out. Woo! Uh, that's good as well. Uh, the book, the book is uh, back in stock at ultimatenes.com. Uh, check out Ian's GoFundMe and for updates on his health at thepunkeffect.com/ian. And uh, hey, if you want to advertise on the CU podcast, send an email to cupodcast at thepunkeffect.com. So, I was Pat Contry, I guess, at some point. I'm exhausted. I gotta go eat some dinner. I think the doorbell just rang. I think that's my Uber Eats right there, actually. Uh, should, should I boycott Uber Eats? Uh, it's too convenient right now. I'm sorry. All right, I'll see you later. <laughs>